Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. This is half an hour on your radio where we talk about sciencey things. All good things science. All good things science. Uh, I'm Stu and on this week's show I'm going to be talking about randomness. Randomness. What, what is random? What does it mean? And why is that even important to science? What has that got to do with science? Ooh. Uh, Manisha, what are you going to be talking about? I'm going to be talking about um, one of those things that we've all probably pondered and wondered about and asked each other and thought about in ourselves. Are you an early bird or a night owl? And really, what makes you either? And is there a real thing that makes you either? Hmm. Interesting to find out. Yep. Um, I'm not sure about uh, cephalopods, whether they're early birds or night owls, but Claire is going to be talking with Dr. Zoe Doubleday about how cephalopods are taking over the world. Yep, it's a little bit scary. All I can imagine is squid attack. The smartest invertebrate on the planet, uh, benefiting from climate change, apparently. So, uh, yeah, more of that later in the show. Stay tuned. does the word random mean to you? I'm really, really um, inclined to just scream into the microphone <laughs> or something. I'm, I'm thinking it, but I feel like our listeners are not going to uh, appreciate that. No, probably not. No, and, you know, it's, but it's, to me, that's random. <laughs> it, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of passed into, you know, vernacular usage as a term meaning something unusual or out of the ordinary. Um, exactly. Screaming you know, into kid, the microphone. Kids saying... Oh, it's so random. Oh, or, you know, Or some random guy. Yeah. You know, that sort yeah. of stuff. Um, and the actual meaning literally is that something is unpredictable. It's, it's random. It's a random event. Um, in science, though, we rely on the use of random things. For example, random samples. So if you're running an experiment, you need to remove confirmation bias and other forms of human errors that we yep. consistently produce um, just because of limitations of our puny human brains. Um, And obviously, if things aren't random, then it can skew the results or the findings of your experiment if you always select a particular type of thing or you always select it at a, you know, collect data at a particular time of day or... Sample from the same population. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So the randomness in science is, you know, an important factor. So we kind of have to allocate sampling by using random numbers. But how do we choose random numbers? Well, the the old fashioned way to do it used to be you get random number tables, which were printed tables, and then you would use these tables. There was ways of allocating, oh, well, this is the next random number, this is the next random number. Obviously that's not random. You could try asking people, you know, you could say to people, hey, think uh, think of a number between one and 20. That's not so random either, no, though. No, it's actually terrible. We're notoriously bad uh, at doing this because we've got such weird associations with specific numbers, and we're yeah, you know, we're we're subconsciously superstitious about things and all these sorts of things. If so it's any example, consolation, I was thinking of the number twelve. So whoever else was thinking twelve, not random. Not well, random. there's only That's twenty so numbers ra- to choose from. 
you got a one in 20 chance of getting the same number. Yeah. Um, when, uh, when someone did a survey on this, I looked it up. Uh, someone did a survey uh, on the website Science Blogs, where they just blog about science things. Oh, um, that's interesting. People overwhelmingly... <laughs> chose the number 17. Really? So the number 17, they graphed all the results, and the number 17 had a huge um, peak on that So maybe 12 is a bit more uh, random. Um, Yeah, and they were were asked to pick a random number between 1 and 20, and the next most picked number was 7. Oh. So for some reason in our head, 7 is a number that's random, but it's like, well, it's an odd number, it's a prime number... It's, you know, but it's not random. Um, and we're really just bad at it. We think we know what random is. So we go, oh, well, 17, that's a pretty random number, but it's not actually a random number if everyone chooses that number. Um, and you would think that, you know, maybe computers would do better than us. And in fact, in this uh, survey that they did, they were putting it into a random number generator in a computer and the computer got a much more even dispute? spread yep. of numbers. It wasn't, you know, there was there was still numbers that were favoured oddly, but that's limited to the number of times they asked it the question. You would think over yep. time it would even out. Um, so does that mean computers can pick random numbers? Probably not because... It seems kind of bizarre because they're programmed by patterns that we put into them. So. Well, that's it. Um the applications that you use to get a computer to pick a random number is programmed based on an algorithm to pick numbers. Um, but you can't get a computer to do something completely at random because it's a logic machine. Yep. It's, it works only on logic. Uh, so they, they can um, they can generate an almost random number, but because they are algorithms, it's just like if you were listening to your iPod or MP3 player on shuffle. That's just an algorithm that chooses numbers which would appear to be random. They're random enough that we go, oh, I wasn't expecting to hear this song. You know, it just came on randomly. Um, but it also kind of freaks us out because in in uh, really random sets, it's not weird to get two things in a row. That's just as valid a random number as getting two numbers that are really far apart. Mm. So, you know, if... Because um, each each trial is independent of the last trial. So for you to get that same number again. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, so you know, if, you, if your iPod plays, you know, two songs from the same album, one after the other, that's not that weird. That's, that's actually random. That's as random as it playing, you know, two yeah. songs from one end of the playlist or the other within the set, which is the number of songs you've got on the iPod. Um, so we're just actually not very good at noticing that. As human beings, we're, we're pretty terrible at going, well, this is, this is truly random, which is why we've tried to get uh, computers to, to do things for us randomly. But again, computers are only as good at picking random numbers as the programs that are fed into them. And the old programmer saying is garbage in, garbage out. If you write crummy programs, you get crummy outputs from those programs. And if you put in crummy data, you get crummy outputs as well. Um, <clears throat> but in the world of web-based communications and pretty much all electronic interaction, randomness can be very important, especially where money and security are involved. Ooh. So encryption of things like bank account details and credit card numbers and sensitive information is usually based on some form of random allocation of numbers to encode 
the secure information. So the more random the numbers that are generated, the harder it is for someone to crack the code and hack into your server or hack into your bank account and steal all your stuff. Oh, now I'm scared. Um, well, because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's basically just that any, if a system isn't actually random, then it's based on a system and the system can be worked out given enough time and enough information about what it's done before. So yep. that's how hackers basically can crack codes and uh, that sort of thing. Now, this is all kind of scary, but there, I, this is why I, I um, got onto the randomness train. Uh, it wasn't random. I read an article <laughs> that uh, a new system is being announced at a symposium on the theory of computing in Massachusetts in the US next month. Um, and it's believed to be the most random system yet developed because what it does is it, base, it bases its random number on multiple real-world variables which come from the user's computer. So there's things that your computer's doing at any given time which this uh, application will grab a number from that. So it might be the clock speed of the processor at any given time or it might be the position of the mouse on your computer screen at any given time. But they can set that up to choose which number it's going to choose. And that a combination of those randomly chosen numbers of random operations on your computer are going to help it make a, a more random number. Yeah. And then they run it through what they call a resilient function, and that's just a mathematical, another algorithm really, but what it does is filters out potentially biased numbers. So if some of the if some of the random numbers it pulls out of your computer all look a bit too similar or all look a bit too biased, like if you've just left your mouse sitting on one side of the screen and it keeps going for that location as the random number, then the resilient function goes, oh no, too many times that one's come up, so we'll scrap that one and we'll use something else. Hmm. Um, so, they, yeah, the guys who developed this are from the University of Texas and they think it's not truly random because it's still a computer program, but they think it's as random as anyone has truly got yet and yet they still call it pseudo-randomness. It generates pseudo-random <laughs> numbers, not actual random numbers. But, you know, but better hey. security is probably better for everyone. Everyone, yeah. yeah. night owl and what makes you either this is a very advanced quiz i'm putting that out there number one if you could go to bed whenever you'd like would you go to bed a between 8 p.m and 10 p.m b between 10 p.m and midnight or c midnight or later midnight or later two if you could wake up whenever you'd like when would you wake up a between 6 30 and 8 between 8 and 11 or after 11? I'd say between 8 and 11. 
Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't want to wake up after 11. Third question, the final question is, uh, do you find it easy to get up in the morning? A, yes. B, sometimes. And C, no. No. <laughs> so, if, um, if you're like Stu and you answered C or C to most of these questions, um, you're probably a night owl. Um, but if you tended to answer A, surprise, surprise, you're an early bird. This was such a complex quiz. Yeah, I really didn't need to do a quiz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyone answering in between, well, you're a little bit of both. What helps us control these preferences? Is there, is there anything controlling them or is it just our lifestyle? A study out of David Hines' lab at the genetics company 23andMe earlier this year found that there may be a genetic link to, to your behavior. In the study, they took genetic samples from 90,000 participants who were um, also asked whether they considered themselves night owls or early birds. Um, the scientists then analyzed the DNA for single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, um, and they looked for which SNPs showed up consistently. They found that 15 SNPs, which, if present, were, they found, sorry, they found 15 SNPs, which, if present, were 5 to 25% more likely to be associated with a morning person. Um, the scientists did recognize that there are some life history traits that seem to also determine sleeping patterns like age and gender, but these 15 SNPs were the, uh, still most likely to be uh, found in self-proclaimed early birds. So they could, they could use those genetic markers to predict if you're an early bird or not. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and a lot of people um, argue that they're an early bird because of their job or whatever the case may be, but... This is beyond that. This is what, what you would do if you had the choice. What you would do should you not have a, a, an alarm clock or a time to be up by. Most studies on sleep variation suggest an evolutionary advantage to having the mix of the two types in our, in our society. If we think back to our hunter-gatherer society, sleeping in shifts seems normal. So we try to optimize our protection because not the, enti the entire group wouldn't go to sleep at once. Some, some people would be awake um, and while the others slept. So different, different family or tribe members are awake at different times of the night and day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it makes sense that we have these variations in our sleep pattern. But in our modern day, it actually seems that the night owls might be a little bit disadvantaged since our society seems to work between nine and five. Um, from this study and other studies, there are actually some uh, patterns that people have drawn out about the health or personality um, of the different t uh, types or of night owls and of early birds. So night owls actually tend to be more intelligent and have higher IQs, and they can remain focused on tasks for a longer period of time, so they tend to be more productive. On the other hand, it's also night owls that tend to um, experience a lot of mood disorders or experience uh, symptoms of depression more likely than early birds. And these have been associated with a new, like a number of different things. But some of the ones that kind of jumped out at me were, uh, one was the lack of experiencing sunlight. And if you've been keeping up with some of these mood disorder, uh, like the literature around them, this has actually turned out to be really common along um, with a lot of them. A lot of our mood is dependent on how much sun and fresh air we get. And then the other thing was a level of isolation, which if it makes kind of, it makes sense that night owls would experience a higher level of isolation than early birds because 
the world's not working on their schedule and when they're awake and happy and active and ready to go, everybody else seems to be in bed. Yeah, I wonder if the uh, you know the, the rise of the internet has led to uh, less isolation or more isolation in that aspect because you know what, pretty much you can always communicate with someone Somebody, somewhere in the yeah, world at any it's time. daytime yeah. somewhere, yeah, fair enough. Um, uh, apparently there have been studies to suggest that it's not in our genes at all and it's what we do and we ha- we're a society of night owls now because we have these luxuries and we have electric light and yeah you know, heating and all that sort of stuff yeah. exactly and like and we have no self-control if you're anything like me and stay up half the night watching tv shows or movies and things like that and so that's meant to be contributing to our night owl ways but well you know some some, <laughs> some people might argue that self-control is going to bed whenever you feel like it Oh, yeah. Maybe that's a lack of self-control. Yeah, I'm I'm a grown-up. I'll go to bed when I want. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> basically. Nobody, I don't have a bedtime. Um, anyways, uh, for early birds, on, in contrast to uh, night owls, early birds are, um, they're, the whole society being structured around the daytime is really works in their favor. They're more likely to progress in their um, careers and in their social lives and even in their personal lives. Um, they're more likely to be given opportunities or take um, advantage of opportunities. They're more proactive, so they can um, they tend to experience less strife because they can just foresee things happening or not not in like a clairvoyant sort of way, but they can they can prepare for things, challenges that come their way, and they're better at preparing for these challenges. But on so the, are they saying that the early bird catches the worm is basically what they're <laughs> um, The other side of early birds is that they're actually, they're, they need more sleep. So even though they wake up earlier, they also tend to go to bed earlier. And they often lack a lot of energy, even though they need more sleep. Or maybe they lack a lot of energy because they need more sleep. Um, but one of the ideas or one of the theories is that if you've met an early bird or if you know an early bird, they are happy and they are in it to win it from the get-go. And maybe they're just depleting their energy use in... Early in the day. Yeah. And yeah. then by the time that the rest of the world catches up to them, they're ready for their midday nap they're or done for the day. They've, they've, already, they've already handled a week's worth of work in those short hours. Like they're good. They're it's, quick. It, it's kind of hard to tell, and to use another bird-related analogy, it's a chicken and egg thing yeah. as to, you know, if if early birds are so happy and chirpy and go getting so early in the morning and night owls are slow to rise and grumpy and, you know, isolated, maybe, may, which which one of those happened first? Maybe the grumpy night owls just didn't, just couldn't handle couldn't those chirpy early Just birds. go away. <laughs> so I'll, just, I'll just wait until you've all left the building or, and then I'll go about my business. It's like letting a kid like just go through their tantrum, just let them cry it out and then they'll eventually like <laughs> shut up and fall asleep. <laughs> like something like that, I think. Something like that. I keep saying all of these things and I'm being pretty negative about, an, about early birds, but I actually self-proclaimed I'm an early bird. I love getting up early. I love it. I love that time just before like... The sun rises, that's probably my favorite time of day. Like that, like 5.30 time. Yeah, actually wake up in time to experience that. Just putting that out there. 
Um, but okay, uh, just getting back to the story, it's not all black and white. These results aren't black and white. We don't just say, yeah, you're one or the other. Our sleep preferences are more on a continuous scale. So um, more often than not, you would choose something in the middle or you would choose answer B in on the quizzes. And it's because our genes, if if the genes are controlling it, if these 15 SNPs have anything to do with it, they're going to be working together and our behavior will lie along a continuous gradient. So it's much like our height or our skin color or our shoe size. It's not just one or the other. Um, so don't just take these results as pure fact. And rest assured, if you're a night owl or an early bird, it probably has something to do with your ancestors. of news about declining populations of marine animals from overfishing, ocean acidification and warming water. But a new study has shown there is one group of marine animals that are increasing in number, cephalopods, the family that includes the octopus, squid and cuttlefish. To talk to us about this research, we have Dr. Zoe Doubleday from the University of Adelaide Environment Institute with us. Zoe, welcome to Lost in Science. Hi. Now, Zoe, can you tell us a little bit about your research findings? Are cephalopods taking over the ocean? Well, what we found is we looked at historical data in cephalopod abundance, so how numbers of cephalopods have changed over time for the last 60 years, going back to the 1950s. So we looked at lots of different species from around the world, and what we found is quite a consistent increase in abundance over time. And this was consistent across three different groups of cephalopods that have very different biologies and also live in different habitats. So this consistency was quite amazing, so it suggested something large-scale was going on that was changing the abundance in cephalopods. And this large-scale reason for changing the abundance of cephalopods. Do you have an insight into the reasons behind this increase? Yeah, well, it's all speculation at this um, stage. So the data tells us, suggests that it's large scale. It also just suggests that what's causing it is directional. So that what means is it's a process that's going in one direction rather than cycling up and down. So it might be something like global warming, which is generally going on an upward trend. It's it's directional. Uh, so that's one theory because temperature may speed up the growth rates and the life cycles of cephalopods as long as it's in their um, optimal temperature range still. And um, another theory is fishing of fish species. So fish um, compete with cephalopods for food. They're competitors, but they also predate on cephalopods as well. So by removing a lot of the fish species from overfishing, we may be conferring an advantage to cephalopods. There could be multiple reasons. Humans have been changing the environment, particularly since the onset of the Industrial Revolution and European colonisation in some countries. So, and that may, might be other things, other climate change factors and pollution, habitat modification, things like that. And you mentioned um, the three 
distinct groups of cephalopods. Can you run us through them? Yeah, so I mean, but people generally are used to things, the octopus, cuttlefish and squid. So they're your sort of taxonomic groups, as it were. Even though all those groups are included in our study, we didn't divide the data up like that. Um, We divided it more based on similar life history characteristics. For instance, some octopus species have really large benthic hatchlings, so they're born just like their parents, but just a bit smaller. And some octopus have little larvae that float around in the ocean for months before becoming little octopus. So we decided to divide the, the data up into these sort of life history groups. So we had species that what we call demersal, so they live on the sea floor their whole lives, they don't move very far, both the, the juvenile stage and the adult stage. Then we looked at what we call benthopelagic, and that means the young uh, live out in the open ocean, like float around as plankton for a few months before they settle down and become benthic adults and don't move very far. So they might move around hundreds of kilometres throughout their life. And then we had the last group, which was what we call solely pelagic. So the young are pelagic, they move around the water, the column, and the adults also move around in the water column, and they might travel thousands of kilometres during their life cycle. So we decided to look at all those three groups because they'll have be exposed to different environments and but what we found was a consistent increase across all three of those groups. And in terms of their reproduction and how long it takes for them to reach maturity, are there any similarities across um, those three family groups? Yeah, so because we have got this consistent um, increase across this quite diverse group, I mean, you've got to remember there's over 800 species of cephalopods. We looked about 35 or so. Um, species slash genre so they are a diverse diverse group and but what's common among them is they're they're short-lived like most live one or two years they they grow really fast throughout their entire life cycle they don't just slow down like sort of adults do uh, I mean humans do or, or fish do they so they have fast generation turnover and they're also what we call plastic, highly plastic, so it's a scientific oh. term where we call it life history plasticity, where so if there's more food, they might be able to grow more and just become bigger right. and reproduce more. That's, it, is, is that an advantage to not having a skeleton? Um, I don't necessarily think so, okay. but generally inverte- I think invertebrates can be more, more plastic and responsive. So but they can change their size and age when they mature quite dramatically because of just changes in the environment. So if the environment changes for better or worse, they can, they can adapt. They can, you know, if you just compare it to humans, you know, we, we pretty much stay the same size. doesn't matter how much yeah. food's around. We might put on more energy reserves, but we stay the same size. We reproduce capacity is the same and we, you know... Our maturity, when we mature, we're at the same age and generally the same size. But something like a cephalopod can dramatically change those statistics depending on the environment around them, which is quite incredible. How did you undertake this research? Um, Was it through fishing data or um, from around the world? Yep. So we collected historical data. There was no one-line database that some people think (laughs) was there for us to download. Uh, Contacted 
fishing a fisheries government agencies for fisheries data we also con um, from research institutions for scientific surveys so survey data over many years particularly from Europe which have some long-term survey data um, we also got data from the published scientific literature which is already available in the public domain we just searched widely for those papers and also a lot of the grey literature which we call government reports which sometimes may you know we can find them and there's a lot of data in those and we you know unpublished data again we got from agencies, government institutions, and also a couple of NGOs. So we got some series from Madagascar and Mauritius, which were collected wow. from NGO groups working with um, subsistence fisheries in those countries. It sounds like you cast your net far and wide, yes. so to speak. Yes, we even needed to... Getting data from some countries is quite difficult. I mean, there's more data out there, I'm sure, like... It can be difficult getting data from Japan, and there's all the language barriers. Like I was sent a hundred-page report in Japanese, and <laughs> with some fisheries data in it, but it requires translation and things like that. So it wasn't a small task. Absolutely. And I need to ask you, my three-year-old nephew, he's obsessed with giant squid. <laughs> so is there going to be any increase in the giant squid population? You know, I think that's going to make him quite quite happy if I can tell him that. Well, we didn't. Unfortunately, we couldn't get any data on Arkatoopas. Um, oh, disappointing. That would be the holy grail, getting data. <laughs> and, uh, but they only rarely see them. They come to surface once a year or something like that. But So we don't know about the giant squid. We can hypothesise yeah. about them. Maybe if they start turning up, if we get start getting more and more sightings, you know, in fishing boats and things like that over time. There's lots of different ways we could measure, you know, but it has to be comparable over time as well. But that's something, you, more and more sightings, who knows, more and more whales with battle scars. Yeah, squids. <laughs> I will keep my fingers crossed for that one. But yes, we can't say, or the colossal squid either. Zoe, thanks so much for speaking to us on Lost in Science today. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your research in the future and, yeah, yeah some, some of those reasons behind what's led to this cephalopod boom. Yeah, it'll be, that's what we want to look at next. And, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, work out, look at this in more detail. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thank you. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science.
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.